Our friend Nancy, sorry. You know, this is... I accept full responsibility. I didn't, I didn't do a... You want me to use this one, Derek? I've, I didn't do a sound check. That's why, <laughs> that's why I was running behind. I didn't do a sound check. That's one of the reasons why we try and do that every Sunday. So thanks, guys. That's a good... Oh, I was going to tell you, our friend Nancy, related to that opening song, she says, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. That was a good one. Mention a couple things before we pray, and I get into the message. Uh, good Fridays, you'll hear this again at the end of service, but at the beginning too, just an invitation. Show up here Friday evening, 6.30 for a one-hour Good Friday service. Uh, we alternate scripture readings and songs. It's a bit of a somber uh, service. But it's really helpful simply in remembering what Jesus did for us, a little bit about his suffering, what our salvation costs. So sure, encourage you to come to that. Today is Palm Sunday, and I'm mentioning that because there was a great Palm Sunday message in Sunday school here. So if you weren't here for Sunday school, you missed it, because I'm not doing a Palm Sunday message, okay? So if you want to hear a great Palm Sunday message, why uh, go online uh, this week, and you can hear Steve's version on that. But I'm going to continue in the series we've been in, and with that, humor aside, let me pray, and we'll get into the Scripture. Father, we depend on you to open the eyes of our heart, to help us perceive truth, really reality, Lord. Uh, you are all about reality. Help us to take in the things you mean for us this morning, no more and no less, in a way that gives greater transformation into your son Jesus' image, which is your goal in our lives. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, near the end of Jesus' mission on earth, thinking of Matthew 22, uh, he's already been rejected by Jewish leadership, but they're really trying to paint him into a corner. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees sort of tag team. They're coming back and forth with these questions. They hope to catch him in his answer so he'll alienate either the Roman leadership or the Jewish people themselves. And during that back and forth challenge, one of the questions that was raised to him, Matthew 22, verse 36, is, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in all of the law? And of course, he referenced Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which is a passage we'll look at, Lord willing, in the future, when he said, Well, the greatest commandment, of course, is to love God with all that you are, you know body, soul, and mind, so to speak. That's verse 38. He wasn't asked this, but his, his answer to their question goes on. So the first he says is to love God. But then he says, unbidden, the second is like it. So the first commandment, love God. The second is like it, he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concluded, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now that's a little startling. Uh, one, he didn't have to give the second phrase. First phrase, love God. But the second after it is love your neighbor. And he said, if you summarized all the law, now just think about that. If you took your Bible, I took mine, and in my study Bible, this is 1,700 pages. And in my regular Bible without study notes, it's 1,200 pages. And Jesus says you can summarize the content of the Old Testament text by saying love God and love others. That's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? And he was quoting from Leviticus 19.18, and that's a passage that has a lot to do with how we treat each other. You typically aren't looking to Leviticus to find the key doctrine or text out of the Old Testament, but Jesus says, no, it's there, Leviticus 19, verse 18. So summarize all the Old Testament, love God, and love your neighbors. And so it's no wonder that when you get to the Ten Commandments in the law, whether it's Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, the passage will be in this morning, it's no wonder that those two key themes that Jesus highlights, that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words are all about, first, loving God vertically, and then the rest are all about loving your neighbor horizontally. That's what you'll see this morning. This is the ninth message 
in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series. And we've already looked at the first four commandments. So you remember vertically, uh, no other gods. No other gods by way of any form of idolatry. We don't take God's name in vain. And we keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a little different than those other ones. We won't get into that this morning. But you remember part of the key phrase on that was we keep Sabbath to the Lord. That the rest, that seventh day rest was with it was an invitation to communion with Yahweh, with the God of the covenant. So that, those first four are vertically related. It's love God. How do you love God? Well, these are the ways you do it, those first four words. So today we're going to look at the last six commands, all of which have to do with loving our neighbor. So Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor. That's the law and the prophets. You read the Ten Commandments, and what do you have? you got love God and love your neighbor. I'm going to say this too. This is a bit ridiculous to take six of these commands in one Sunday morning and cover six, but that's what we're going to do. So if you want, so necessarily, of course, every message on every one of these is pretty cryptic, but this series was done in 2012, nine years ago, and there's a, there's a full-length message on every one of the individual commands. So if you want to hear more on any one of those, you can do that online. That was called the 10 Words 2012. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy 5. We're going to be in verses 16 through 22. I'll read from the ESV, and then we'll take these one at a time. So we've, we've moved from the fourth and Sabbath and Godward commands. Now we start the horizontal ones. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord, as Yahweh, your God, commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors, concluding these words, the Lord Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain of the midst of fire. And remember, this is the end of Moses's life. So Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments in the narrative, but Deuteronomy is Moses looking back 40 years. So he's reminding them, the cloud, the thick darkness with a loud voice, he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. I'll just mention before we get into the individual commands, in the Ten Commandments, the fourth and the fifth are the only ones that are stated as positives. And it's interesting, I'm assuming, I'm, I couldn't tell you exactly what the intention there is, but the last command having to do with God vertically is stated as a positive, do something, do keep Sabbath. The first one that deals with the horizontal loving your neighbor is stated as a positive also, honor your parents. But the first three are stated as negatives, and the last five are stated as negatives. So we hinge on those two positives in the middle when we conclude the, the ones on God and then start the ones on our neighbors. So these commands, like most others, these are eternally binding. You know, we've talked about the Sabbath, and we've said the Sabbath was keeping the fourth command. It's changed over the years. It was symbolic, and we don't keep Sabbath today certainly not the way the Jews were required to. These, though, are all eternal principles because they apply to all people at all times. And all of these commands are also reiterated in the Gospels and the Epistles. So this isn't like a, the Sabbath keeping. We say, well, that no longer applies. We say, no, like many other things, these things were true. These things were binding on us by God before the law of Moses, under the law of Moses, and for you and I today, under the new covenant as well. So we'll look at the first one, verse 16, the fifth command. When God starts the commands that have to do with loving our neighbor, he starts in the family and in the household. Isn't that an interesting place to start? Have you ever found that it's easier to love people that aren't related to you, that you don't live with, than those that you rub shoulders with routinely? I do. So honor, honor is the Hebrew kavod, and it means literally to be heavy. When I think of this word, I think of a huge granite rock, 
you know, that's sitting there and you say it's massive and it's really heavy. And the implication was that the weight, if you will, indicated significance. So the, the weightiness of the person or the thing indicated its value or its significance. So God says to give to your parents an estimation that they are weighty, that they have value, that they are significant, that they deserve your honor. This is a term that's used, in fact, when I think of it, I don't think of this command. I think of God and his attributes because God assigns this term to himself, kavod, Exodus 14.4, I will get glory over Pharaoh, he says. I will get honor or esteem among the nations when they see what I'm capable of against the Egyptians. So treat your parents with the respect and significance God accords them because they are your parents. Stated negatively, we could say it like this. Don't keep from your parents what you owe them. Obedience in our formative years, always honor and respect, and sometimes at least material aid. The sense is from the beginning, we owe our parents something uniquely. We don't necessarily owe others. So generally, loving our parents is showing them esteem and respect and value. That's the debt, if you will, we have to pay to our parents. By the way, again, if you have, we qualify lots of things because you can't cover every base, right? So I'll mention this in a little bit, but sometimes we have relationships with our neighbors, whoever those are, parents, kids, neighbors, work, work associates, whatever. And we say, I can't really love that person for this reason. And I say, well, we can't always love others. We can love our friends. We can love our family. We can love and are called to love our enemies. So it may not be possible in the way we would like it to be, but we can always, and we're called to, we'll see in a little bit, the debt you and I never fully pay off, Romans 13, is the debt to love others. You and I never pay that off. We'll look at that here in a little bit. So you might say, man, you don't know what my relationship is with my parents. I'd say, that's fine. Hold that thought for just a minute. So stated negatively again, don't keep. And all these commands have to do with not taking something from someone else that isn't yours. All of these commands are based on that on the horizontal. Don't take from someone else what isn't yours to take. They're made in the image of God. They have value before God. God has given them some things. He's given us or you or me other things. Don't take from others what God has given them. And related to loving starting in the family, it's honor to parents. In the Gospels, if you have a study sheet, the verses will be on there. Matthew 15, 1 through 6, Jesus castigates the Pharisees because they had created a rule whereby people didn't need to honor their parents by way of material aid. So this term honor, it's pretty broad. Treat them with value and significance. So we could say, well, I'm a kid. That means I give them obedience. But also it's implied that if my parents were sick and needed material help, I would help them because they have value and significance. Or my parents are elderly and they need help. It's the same thing. And rules that the Pharisees had developed basically became excuses for people not to keep God's word here, to give their parents honor, esteem, give them value by what they did. And if you look in Jesus' own life, Jesus modeled, of course, he models perfectly love for the Father and love for neighbors or the world around him as well. But on this one specifically, John 8, 49, Jesus said, I honor my Father. I'm living this out vertically to God. I'm giving honor, value. The Greek is timao. I prize my father. I revere him. I value him. I honor my father. Also, John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's respect and it's obedience. Jesus says, I'm obeying my father. So he lived those out vertically and then I'm sure you're aware also he lived them out horizontally too, didn't he? It's not, it's not insignificant that in Luke 2.51, we're told that Jesus was submissive to his parents, to Mary and Joseph. Remember, he'd been lost. And he's at the temple in Jerusalem. They forget where he's at. But when he goes home, it says that he lived in submission to his 
earthly parents. He gave them respect. He obeyed them. And then in John 19, 26, which is really a touching, uh, this is probably a, as emotionally sort of compelling an element or an illustration or an example of respect and love for parents. Jesus is hanging on the cross, right, bearing the sins of the world. And what's he do? He honors his mom. He says, hey, you're going to need someone, and I'm giving you to my friend, the Apostle John. He's going to take care of you. You're his new mother, and he's your new son. What does that mean? It means that he's providing for Mary's care after he dies. If you look in the, what are called the family portions of the New Testament, this would be Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3, and to a lesser degree, 1 Peter 3. Uh, every time God addresses kids, what's he tell them to do? <laughs> he says, obey your parents. <laughs> obey. I wonder why that is. I bet all the parents could enjoy just one message on children, obey your parents, don't you think? Uh, the command to love others begins in the home and family, and the first instance of that love in the home is from children to parents. Now, I don't think this is a mistake. We might say, well, the place to begin is parents to children. I think that's assumed. And then this comes up in Deuteronomy 6. In the next chapter, God's going to talk to parents about how they relate to their children. I think it's assumed here in the Ten Words. So even when relationships with parents, and this would be true... These things would be true to some degree with almost anyone else. Even when relationships with parents are strained or otherwise unhealthy, we can still love and honor them because we can pray for them. You can always pray for someone else. Always pray for We can help them practically and materially as needed. And I say that because we often forget biblical love is not an emotion. It's, it's a lovely thing if we feel loving towards others or we feel loved emotionally by others. That's a lovely thing, right? That is not the biblical norm. The definition biblically of love is to do what's in another person's best interest. So Jesus can be in agony on the cross and he's being very loving because he's doing what's in our best interest. He may not feel the love in the moment, but he is absolutely loving because he's doing what is in our best interest and to honor the Father. And the last days, isn't this interesting? The last days are characterized by a lack of honor to parents. This is Matthew 10. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. That's alienation, isn't it? 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 says, In the last days, children will be disobedient to parents. We're not going to qualify this today. Typically, when we think of children obey your parents, we're thinking of small children, but biblically the concept goes beyond that because you're talking to adults in the epistles. And what that looks like and what a healthy balance, a version of that looks like, that's for another day. But obedience e even was the norm into adulthood towards your parents. And I don't, we're not qualifying that. So don't hold me to that, okay? If you have questions, we'll talk or listen to the other message from nine years ago. But when love for others grows cold, it often begins in the family and in the home. So when God starts with love your neighbor, it's starting your own household toward your parents. Verse 17 is the sixth command. That says don't murder. In the Hebrew, all these commands are very cryptic. It doesn't say and you shall not. It just says don't murder. Murder in the Hebrew is ratzak, and it refers to premeditated or accidental taking of the life of another human being, any unauthorized killing. So we would say something like this, don't take away another person's life by premeditated means. Now, probably in our group we say, not a problem, I hope. Don't premeditatedly take away someone else's life. It also has to do, though, with this, don't take away another person's life through unnecessary violence or through negligence. And I think this, this is probably the portion that probably gets more application to you and I. So we would start with saying something like, uh, in our vocabulary, first and second degree murder. We'd say, yeah, that's, that's a bad thing. Don't do that. But we'd also say that negligence is. So in Exodus 21, 29, here's the example. A guy has an ox, and the ox is known to gore people. That's not a good thing. And the owner doesn't constrain the ox, and the ox kills someone. 
Exodus called for the death of the owner of the ox. Because through negligence, he knew, I'm, I own something, I'm responsible for something that could cause great harm to someone else. And I did nothing to prevent the death of this neighbor, whoever that was, because I didn't restrain my ox. It was the death penalty. Because it was seen under this command. You knew better, you knew you should restrain your ox. You left other people hanging out. Someone's dead because of your negligence. You forfeit your own life. You'll also see in the law, uh, the Jews typically had very, we would call a low slope roof. You know, they weren't the gable roofs like we have on our homes. They're low slope. So people were often walking on the roof. The law required that you install a parapet on the edge of your roof. Why? So people didn't just fall off the edge. So there was this consideration that it wasn't just what we would think of as first degree premeditated murder, but it also included something like violence against a neighbor that's not necessary or simply negligence. And certainly the law today still rep, uh, recognizes negligence as something that you and I are responsible for. So don't take away another person's life through malice and premeditation, uncalled for violence, or refusing to be responsible for potentially harmful situations that you, you have control over. This does not mention, and oftentimes when you hear debates about the death penalty, capital punishment, you'll hear people who don't read their Bible quoting the Bible and quoting this command, don't kill. And that is not what the text says, and it is not what the text means. In fact, if you read throughout the law, God enjoined capital punishment repeatedly. You can't quote this command and say, God says don't kill. God required under the law the death penalty for numerous infractions. It doesn't cover taking life in self-defense. It does not cover war. It does not cover capital punishment. You see God leading Israel in all of these ways, self-defense, war, and capital punishment, appropriately following God. That's not what this command is speaking to. Stated positively, we would say respect the lives of others. Be careful for the lives of others. You know, be careful. Take care where someone else's good welfare their physical body is subject to harm. Be careful for them. Respect them. Take care for them. And this is, you know, we think we advance because we get smarter or we have technology. But there has not been a more murderous time in the history of the world than the last 100 years when technology has just sprung. You've got more murders through two regimes, Stalin and Mao in Russia and China, then you have for world wars combined, at least 150 million. Murder has been the official policy of numerous communist regimes. Murder of Christians today is the policy in much of the Muslim world. Mass murders are semi-common, are they not, in the United States? I looked at the news last night. It mentioned three mass shootings uh, 10 fatalities, two fatalities, and I can't remember what the other one was, just in the last week. So we live in a murderous age and a murderous culture. So we don't take this for granted. Uh, by the way, character assassination, uh, thinking of social media, calls for harm and death. I, I'm not, guys, I'm not on social media, so I get my toe wet once in a while by just looking at some things. But people are calling for the physical harm or death or burning people's businesses down semi-routinely on social media. That's the age we live in. Think of this, if we want to love our neighbor. Jesus couldn't show the value of human life any more fully than he did for human beings through his death on the cross. And the thought in my mind is, if Jesus loved us to the point of death, it's probably incumbent on us. Christians are little Jesuses, right? Christ. Christians are Christ's, little Christ's. And the difference between us and anyone else is that Christ lives in us. Amen. It's not that we're somehow uniquely better than anyone else in the world. It's that Christ is in us. And if Christ, who loved the world to the point of death, is in us, we should be loving our neighbors. Murder should be the last thing. I mean, caring for others should be a given because Christ and Christ's love is in us. And with that, we want to make sure that we give them the gospel. This is just a segue to say loving our neighbors is not only looking after their life sort of negatively that they, they don't get harmed, but positively 
we want to be careful that we're taking those opportunities to share the hope we have in Christ with others who don't know him, that we're loving our neighbors by way of sharing the hope we have in Christ also. So we can't love our neighbor if we don't value them the way God does. So care and respect for their life, their health, that should be a given for us as well. Uh, Verse 18, this is the seventh word or command is don't commit adultery. And again, with the thought of taking what isn't ours, don't take another person's spouse. Don't physically take someone, a person that isn't yours physically to have. Don't take another person's spouse. And I say this whether they're already married or they're yet to be married. Now, the word here is adultery. It's not sexual immorality. It's adultery. It's very specific. But if I say, well, it's okay for me to sleep around because this person isn't married, well, if they get married in the future, they're someone else's spouse. They just haven't been married yet. So when I think of this, I don't think of just someone who's married, someone who might be married. They're not mine, so I don't take them. Leland Riken says this in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, A man who will betray his wife, and this would apply to women as well, a man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. And I love the use of that term, treason. It's a betrayal of the covenant relationship we have with our spouse. Or it's a betrayal of someone else's covenant relationship they have with their spouse. Al Mohler, in his commentary, writes this, a culture that embraces adultery, and this is certainly where this culture is today. This is where we live. A culture that embraces adultery accepts within itself a poison pill for every other relationship, a toxic substance that threatens every other commitment. And the thought is this, if I will betray that most intimate covenantal relationship with someone else, I'll betray anyone. If I'll act treasonably against the person I've made a covenant of marriage with, there's no one I wouldn't treat unfaithfully. Sexual immorality and adultery. And if you see this glamorized in books or movies or someone else's story to yourself, this is the thing. Adultery is never love. I don't care what you say. I don't care how you frame it. I don't care how glamorous the movie is or or how the book paints it out. And I can say that unequivocally because adultery is never in another person's best interest. Never. So whatever emotion someone or someone's feel towards another, if it's adulterous, it cannot be love. It cannot be loving because it's not in their best interest. So by definition, it cannot be love. Jesus demonstrated the value of our marriage covenant by dying to redeem his bride, the church. And you remember, we've already seen that God is jealous for his people. God is protective of his relationship with Israel. Christ is protective of his relationship with us. There's that sacred, appropriate jealousy that guards that covenantal marriage relationship we have with the Lord. Yeah, radical, jealous keeping of that relationship. So we love our neighbor in part by respecting the marriage covenant of others, and also we love our neighbor by guarding our own heart toward and for our own spouse. We should keep our marriage healthy. We should make sure we're tending to our own garden So that there's not a temptation that we're building walls. Guys, I'll tell you, uh, marriages are routinely in trouble. And it's not just out there, it's in here. And to be praying for and paying attention to our own marriages is a big deal. We want to be protective of them appropriately. Uh, Verse 19, the eighth commandment is don't steal. And this has to do with the material thing, so don't steal someone else's spouse. This is don't steal, don't take someone else's material possessions. And when I was looking at my notes from nine years ago, I think I've probably got more specific examples of this one than any other. There are so many ways to take from others what isn't ours to take. The list is almost endless. 
And part of it's because of technology and the day we live in. So I could break into your house or to a store and I can, you know, at the, at the middle of the night. When I was a firefighter, you know, you get all these great stories when you're interacting with emergencies. There were these people around Topeka and it was the MO. We kept getting called. And what, what was the call? Well, someone drove their car into the front end of a business, a glass front. They broke it out, they walked in, they stole whatever they want, and they drove away. And this was how they were stealing. They were just driving the car, ramming it into the front of the business, walking in the minus windows, and walking out with whatever they wanted. That's, that's not a good thing, right? That would certainly qualify here. Shoplifting, you know, I leave a store without paying, lying on my time cards at work. There's a host of ways we're not getting into. Political theft is routine these days, but also there's all kinds of things in our monetized world that qualify as taking from someone else value or wealth or things that aren't mine to have. This is only possible because we don't love our neighbors. I think more highly of myself if I steal from you. I say you're not as important as me, so it's okay if I take what you have for myself. Theft and stealing are typical of the unloving acts of those who don't belong to Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.10, thieves and the greedy, he says these are not characteristics of those who are members of the kingdom of God. Ephesians 4.28 is my favorite verse on this because it's a negative and it's a positive. And you sort of see the contrast side by side. So Paul's writing to Christians... And he says, he who steals, so this was your former life. You've, you've taken stuff that wasn't yours to take. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now think about that for just a minute. Christ turns unloving takers into loving givers. That's what the gospel, that's what Christ's life does to an individual. I used to steal, but now I work so that I have something to give away. I'm not only not taking things from others that aren't mine to take, but now I'm giving things away to others just like Christ. Christ came and gave his life for us. So as Christ's followers, the positive side of this is not only don't steal, but Christians should be the examples on the earth of generosity we have promises from God to care for us, right? God, God has made promises. I'm always with you. I'll meet your needs as God defines them to be. Christians can afford to be generous. Christ in us is generous by nature. So not only not stealing, but generosity towards others should be a given. And I love that. The gospel changes everything. Jesus came to give us life abundantly. Christ in us is giving away, not just not taking from others, but is giving things away to others as well. Uh, verse 20 is the ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. This is another huge one in our day and time. And, and uh, technology by way of social media has um, supercharged, as it were, numerous elements of our carnal fallen natures. And this is certainly one of them. The Hebrew there is shav, destroy, or ruin. Don't destroy your neighbor by what you say. Don't take away another person's reputation. Don't lie about another person to their harm. Don't slander, we would say briefly. Don't slander. This, this word is not don't lie. Many people will, will mischaracterize this text. It doesn't say don't lie. It says don't lie about your neighbor. It is slander specifically that's in view. Don't shade the truth to elevate ourselves and put others down. If you go back to Genesis 3, it was slander against God. It was Satan's impugning God's character to Eve that led to her taking something that wasn't hers to take. So you remember in the temptation, has God really said the implication is God's not good. You know, then he, he, he boldly says, he's got stuff he doesn't want you to have. So Satan slanders God, and it's out of that slander that Eve falls to temptation, takes what was not hers to have and gives it to Adam as well. So slander, slander has taken humanity down the road of death from that point on. Satan slandered God. 
Slander is a form of lying, and Satan is the father of lies. And we, we need to be really, really clear on this, that when we have anything to do with slander, we're, we're not telling the truth about someone else, and what we're saying is to their harm, and it's not true. And when we do that, we look like the most malevolent, evil, wicked creature in the cosmos. Satan is the father of lies. When we join in slandering others, taking their reputation, taking their good name, we look like Satan, not like Christ. Now, this is interesting, is it not? Jesus, who could nail all of us for all the ways we sin accurately, no false charges, right? He could condemn us. Think of John 8, the woman caught in adultery. What does he do? Well, he covers our sin with his blood. And he doesn't accuse us, but he could. And he tells us, don't you lie about others. Jesus has died to save people like us. Don't you destroy, don't you take life and reputation away from others that I've died for as well. Jesus died, John 3, for the sins of the world, 1 John 2 and John 3. Died for the sins of the world. Don't you harm by your words people that I've demonstrated my love for. And in the age of social media, again, recklessness towards people's reputations, it's simply the norm. Care to accurately and in context speak or quote of others is rare. Bearing false witness has become an art form. You know, it's all about who's got the sharpest tongue, who's got the quickest wit, who's got the fastest put down on social media. I was chagrined. I just finished reading a book, studying through a book with one of my son-in-laws. <laughs> this thing came up on social media from the author of the book I just read. And there's all these uh, it's Twitter, and I don't do Twitter, and, but I can see it. And I am, I am shocked. So this is a Christian author, and then these are the responses about him and to him. And it's shocking. And he put himself out there a little bit. He wore a shirt, a shirt with a message that he shouldn't have. It was unwise and imprudent for sure. But it's like you see all these retorts. It's like, do you know the context? Are you aware of why that was there or whatever? It just looks like you're throwing stones. And maybe there's, maybe there's a talk that we need to have, but this is not appropriate. This is not appropriate. Taking away from others their reputation. Are we loving others by being benevolent truth-tellers? Truth-tellers. And even with that, this is something I've had to work on. The fact that something is true doesn't mean that I should repeat it or state it. So the fact that I know something and it's true by sharing that with someone else and, and typically about someone else, is there value in doing that? Is there a good purpose for doing that? And if there's not, there's many things that I, just, I simply shouldn't repeat because it's not helpful. It's not loving. It's not helpful to anyone of whom it's about or to anyone that I might share it. Sometimes there are, but oftentimes there are not. Is it helpful? Is it needed? Much less is it true. So are we being benevolent truth-tellers by protecting their honor and reputation by how we speak about them? Jesus is the truth. So do we, do we look like Christ as far as being benevolent, goodwill in our truth-telling? Then verse 21 is the 10th command. How are we doing? It's kind of a lot, I know. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Verse 21, uh, the 10th command don't covet anything your neighbor has. So this sort of wraps everything up in a big ball. Don't covet anything. The Hebrew kamad there, we, we could just translate it, don't desire. So this is a word that's used positively in some circumstances. But the thought here is it's a desire for something that isn't yours. It's a desire for what you should not set your heart on. That's the thought. So it becomes a wicked or an evil or a deficient desire because I'm setting my heart on something that God gave someone else, he didn't give that to me. So the desire becomes harmful because it's for something that God has not given me. It's an unholy, unhealthy desire for what belongs to someone else. And this is key, and I think this is interesting. Francis Schaeffer says there's no one, even if you kept or thought you kept the first nine commandments, everyone fails at the tenth because everything starts in the heart so this is basically that 
exhortation to not only don't act out in space and time physically towards others or verbally what I say, but it's also don't let those sins start in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in your desires, because that's where everything starts, right? We'll look at a couple texts related to that. So I can't love someone externally if I'm not committed to that love internally in my desires, in my motivations. Unholy thoughts and desires lead to unloving words and actions. Coveting, desiring what God gave someone else and not me leads to other bad things. Listen to this, and, and it's interesting. The Matthew uh, passage is, I'm sure, Jesus looking back at the law or thinking of the law. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. That's straight out of our passage, isn't it? Theft, false witness, slander. Where does it start, he says? Well, it starts in your heart. You want what someone else... Has. Listen to this from James 4, verses 1 and 2. James is a nitty-gritty kind of a guy. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why are you guys at odds with each other? Is it not this, that your passions, and this is hedone in the Greek, we get the word hedonism from it, your desire for pleasure are at war within you. Have you guys ever felt this? Maybe I'm the only one. First Peter, I think it's First Peter 2, has the same thing. The, the lusts that wage war against your own soul. Do you know when we encourage coveting or lust in our own soul? Peter says it's like we've got a civil war going on inside us, and you'll feel it. It does not feel good, for sure. But he says, um, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. So coveting led to murder. He says, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I'm not happy. I can't take from you what I wanted to take, so I'm, now I'm just at odds with you. Proverbs 4.23, helpfully, this applies to so many things. Keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence, New American Standard, for from it flow the springs of life. This is really an invitation to be very careful for what's going on between our ears What's going on in our heart? What's our motive? Where's our, where's our sense of contentment at? What am I fixing my hopes on for contentment in this age and in this time? Love for our neighbors begins in the heart, and coveting is a sin of the heart that leads to other sins. And also, consider this, when I put my desire on something God hasn't given me, I inevitably make it an idol, because I'm displacing God by something I don't have that I want. And so basically these commands come full circle. And the tenth command takes me right back to the first. Have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Remember when we talked about this, it doesn't have to be a, a painting or a statue. Idols of the heart, Colossians spoke of. So it takes us right back to the beginning. Inevitably coveting these strong desires for things God hasn't given us become idolatry. You just can't avoid it. It's, it's effectively the same thing. Okay, so those are, <clears throat> those are the commands. I want to summarize those a little bit this way. We can summarize those horizontal commands positively by doing what Jesus said, love your neighbor. That takes care of all of those horizontal commands about honor your parents and don't take from others what isn't yours to take. You can summarize it by simply saying, love your neighbor. Or we could summarize it. This is Matthew 7, verse 12, called the golden rule. Whatever you want other people to do to you, that's what you should do to them. That's loving your neighbor. Or Romans 13, 8 through 10. Now, Paul wrote this, and again, you know, here's a, here's a Jewish guy, knew the law, writing to Gentile Jewish church, but the law's in his mind as he writes this. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus said, right? Love God and love others. You've fulfilled the law. Paul says exactly the same thing. And in this sense, love is the debt that you're never done paying. If you're on the earth, you're commanded to love God and love your neighbor. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 again, same thing Jesus referenced. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see the same thing, same passage brought up by Jesus and Paul and James in the New Testament saying exactly the same thing. If you love your neighbor, you won't harm them. Love your neighbor and you'll do well. As we approach the end of this age, Jesus said love would grow cold. The love of many would grow cold. And friends, love in the church is growing cold, and love in the culture is frigid. It's just, it's going away. We don't love the way we're commanded to. The two great commands reflected in the Ten Commandments, the two primary calls of God on every Christian, remain love God and love others. Now, I want to... I want to close with this thought. You and I, we don't, we don't keep uh, the law. Not just because it's a covenant we don't live under, but because we don't keep them anyway, right? There's no one who, who fully obeys these, these laws. And so if you say, I'm aspiring nobly to love my neighbor, you know what you'll find, of course? You don't love your neighbor, and the longer you work at it, the more ways you realize you don't love your neighbor or you don't love God. And I want to make sure that we remind ourselves uh, God's Word shows us the dark recesses and corners of our heart and our motive because He's light and He's truth and we're not. But this is the thing. He's not telling you and I as unconverted people disjointed from Him in spiritual darkness to love our neighbor. He's telling people who have the spirit and life of Christ within them to love God and love our neighbor. And that's an entirely different thing. You remember Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love. If Christ's spirit is in me and I find myself not loving others, I don't whip myself to greater effort. The issue is Christ is not being enlarged, Christ's life is not being lived out in me. And so what I need to say and do is, Lord, I'm seeing what I am apart from you. Jesus, I need more of your life expressed through me. We need more of Christ. We don't need to work harder. It's faith, and it's faith that Christ is in us, and he's transforming us more fully into his image. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is producing in us the fruits of the Spirit and the nature of Christ. And so this is why we say, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, knowledge, I could be really smart. I could have all knowledge. He says, knowledge puffs up. So I get really smart, and the tendency is to say, I'm all that. But he says, but love edifies. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I know everything but I don't have love, I'm nothing. So we don't want to confuse, I know a lot. Knowledge is not necessarily spiritual maturity or Christ-like transformation. So we want to know God's word. We want to grow in grace and knowledge. But the issue is always, is Christ's life being magnified, manifest in me? How do I know? The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are descriptions of what Jesus' life looks like in me. So what we'll find, this is the last message on the ten words, is as we aspire nobly to honor Christ by obeying them, we'll see we don't keep them. And it's in those areas that Jesus is showing us you need more transformation. You need more of me. You need more of my life. Don't work harder. We want to repent. <laughs> We want to repent. We want to confess. We want to ask for forgiveness when we need to do that, right? We want to walk humbly, but it's more of Christ that we need. So we don't want to look at these and then beat ourselves up because we found we don't measure up. You remember from the first message, there, the law is there to show us we don't measure up. So when you find that, we're not surprised. There it is again, Lord. I see it again. I repent. I confess. I forgive or gain forgiveness ask for forgiveness, and I go on. So it's really about Christ's life in us. With that, I want to close with uh, a 
couple verses from a hymn. Uh, we don't do a lot of the old hymns, but this, this one's called At Calvary, written by William R. Newell. He was one of my early favorite uh, commentators, Romans and Hebrews. And, but listen to this. So, closing on the commandments that tell us how to love God and love our neighbors, knowing we'll fail. Newell wrote this. By God's word, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary, to the cross, to Christ, to forgiveness, to regeneration, to renewal. The refrain says, mercy there was great, grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me, there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. It's about Christ, not so much about me. He says, now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly owe him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary, Christ in me again. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So when we see these words and we aspire, Lord, we want to love you, we want to love our neighbor, and then we see ourselves failing, it's just a reminder Christ died for our sins, Christ in us is our hope of glory and future transformation, and that's a good day. If we blew it, Lord, I blew it again. I need more of Christ. That's a good day. We can do that. If you would stand, I'll pray briefly, and then we'll read a scripture together as the worship team comes up. Father, from your word, search us and try us. Show us the hurtful places that exist in all of us. And show us how you mean Christ in us to be that transforming grace, mercy, and power to bring more of the life of Jesus in us and through us, Lord, to those around us. In his name, for his glory, amen. amen. Let's read John 13 together. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love.